Hello everyone and welcome to Nano Community Tech. My name is Sandeep Johal. Today's guest is Gary Barfield, a courageous food waste warrior who founded Yumi, a food rescue organization that aims to end food waste, particularly in the fast-moving consumer goods industry. Katie talks about the impact food waste is having on our planet, and our current lifestyle could be contributing to the issue. She expands on how obtaining important insights on supplier and buyer journeys through technology has greatly improved efficiency and operations. She strongly believes that she's not the special source that makes Yumi successful, but does have a good bullshit detector. Katie lovingly pointed out that Yumi means to dream in Japanese. And aside from food rescue, Katie focuses on wellness and its impact on her as CEO. Welcome to the show, Katie. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me. Now, Katie, uh, Yumi is a food rescue organization, uh, but please tell us a little bit more about what Yumi does. Yumi is a technical solution for the end-to-end clearance process at an FMCG level. So from the minute a product becomes designated at risk, it can be plugged into the UMI platform and then it can go through to sale to a number of business buyers or it can go through to donation. But the whole point is that we make sure that no good food ever goes to waste. It's a wonderful cause, Katie, and something that the world certainly uh, can benefit from. But in Australia... There's some shocking numbers I wanted to go through, which is uh, we're seeing 7.6 million tons of food wasted per year. We mentioned before that the uh, uh, commercial sector uh, at this point wastes uh, 3.2 million uh, tons, which is costing the economy billions of dollars. This is a really big problem, isn't it, Katie? Yeah, it's enormous. It's an enormous problem, and it's not... Um, specific to Australia. This is a global issue in the developed world. And I realised that tech was required if we were going to scale a solution that was going to come close to making an impact on that enormous figure. Yeah, and, and you know, the, the figures continue to rise uh, and year on year. And, and certainly Yumi's efforts are to bring that down. Um, but before we get into the... Uh, the, the I guess, the, the, the depth of the technology. Um, a little bit about your past. Now, you were, uh, you're not new to this game. You were the CEO of Second Byte before, um, and you got into this field uh, by noticing problems in the food wastage. Tell us a little bit about, more about that. Yes, well, I was the founding CEO of Second Byte. So originally it was myself, Ian Carson and Simone and the three of us. So they had come up with this concept and had gone down to the Paran market and they were collecting product at the end of trading um, and taking it down to the local Sacred Heart Mission or Paran Mission um, to provide food for people who were going through some tough times and maybe didn't have access to food. And um, I met with Ian And we had a bit of a meeting of the minds and it was just a serendipitous moment where it was the right fit, right place, right time. We hit it off and I subsequently said, oh, I'll come and do this for about six months. And then, you know, seven years later, I was still there and we built it into a national organisation. 
Um, and, you know, my passion was ignited there. I can't say that I was an avid, you know, food waste pioneer before that because I wasn't. That would be untrue. I didn't know enough about it. And I think that's the thing, you know, in a world of so much connectivity, it's amazing how disconnected we've become from our food source. And I was no, I wasn't immune to that either. You know, I just always knew there was food to be bought and food to be eaten for me. I was one of the lucky ones and I never had to really worry about it. And um, but then when I actually started to talk to the people who were struggling to put food on the table, I realized that it was a privilege that I had such an abundance of food available to me. And I also started to realize the just the the depths of our waste in this country, which was particularly brought home to me when uh, some farmers from Africa came over. They were brought over by Oxfam, actually, and they came over to the warehouse at Second Bite and they these women and the women uh, historically were farmers where they were living and they worked the land and they've been brought over to really understand about the food systems here. And they broke down and cried in our warehouse because they could not believe for the life of them that this was a warehouse full of product that no one wanted. And they said, we would never be able to grow this product in our country. We couldn't grow this quality of product. And this is deemed not good enough. Like they couldn't believe it. And I think it's all those moments piled into one and then my own growth and maturity and self-realization that I needed to do something about it. And I wasn't, you know, it, it became my my driving passion and has been ever since. And that was what, 2006. So going back a few years now. <laughs> That's, you know, staggering that we, we have that issue where um, others have come around and said, well, this, this sort of food that we waste, that we throw away seems to be of, of a premium quality. And it seems to me that uh, th- this is not a new thing. And this, there are strict guidelines in Australia about the the quality of food, and I guess the the question I have is is that getting in is that the thing that's causing a lot of these problems, and and did you see this problem as something that you were hoping to uh, resolve um, to to do um, you know to alleviate uh, to to at least reduce? Absolutely. I mean, I I want to see food waste completely eradicated that's the ultimate goal you know not just a bit reduced or a little bit more you know better utilized I want to see it completely gone it's inexcusable that we throw all of this food away I think there are a number of things that contribute to that and I think it's the general public as well we have as I used to grown into a a life of expectation that everything is available to me at all times of the year Um, whenever I want it, however I want it. And I also want choice. And so when we demand that of the uh, shops where we buy our product, they're going to deliver it because they want to make money and they're in business to make money and they're going to sell us what we want. So when we ask for you know, grapes at bizarre times of the year and we they don't grow here at that time of the year, well, they're going to be imported from somewhere else. So we've become so accustomed to having everything we want available to us at all times um, that we 
have taken for granted what mother nature has to do to put that food on our table and just the cost to the planet and the cost to others because we want grapes at certain times of the year so they've got to be shipped from the us because that's the only place that's got grapes at that time of year or asparagus from mexico because hey we want asparagus all year round when we've got some of the best asparagus in the world grown here but you can't have it all year round here so i think you know that's part of the problem as well i don't think you can point into any one place and say they're the bad guys blame them that would be really easy, Sandeep, and I think it would be solved by now if that was the case. But it's a whole of society problem and we all need to wake up because we're asleep at the wheel and we're on a finite planet that has finite, res- well, we're finite resources on this planet. It's not a finite planet, but it's finite resources on this planet and, you know, we can't keep eating through it as though it's infinite because it's not. When you looked at this problem, um, I my understanding is that you did then do something about it and that's how you came about. Yeah, absolutely. I, I did. But at first it was really just being in the right place at the right time, meeting Ian and seeing a need and then understanding more about both the the waste and also the need in Australia. And that's really where the passion came from. And then once you, you can't understand See that you can't unsee someone crying in a warehouse because they just can't wrap their head around how little respect we have for this precious commodity. You can't unsee or unhear those things. That's what drove me. And then that drove me through Second Bite to leave a job that I absolutely loved with people that I loved working with, a team that I had built from the ground up to be a national organisation. There was so much love in that organisation, so much respect. And but it, I, it wasn't I needed to I needed to do more it wasn't enough. I needed to find a way to scale. And I knew that whilst Second Bite was vitally important and continues to be food rescue is a critical part of um, that food relief sector. I knew that we couldn't scale food rescue alone in order to solve the problem of food waste. You know, collectively, the food rescue organisations move two percent of the food that goes to waste in Australia. That puts it in perspective. That's Food Bank, Ozharvest, Second Bite, Fair Share, 2%. So there's no way you can scale those organisations up to achieve a 100% strike rate. That's not going to happen, nor should it. We need to find better ways and we need to do things in real time. So I looked to technology to solve the problem because I realised that visibility is a huge part of the problem. So if there is a glut of mangoes in Queensland... We don't know about it until we read it in the paper, by which time the glut is all finished, done, buried, and it went to waste. Yeah, we hear about it after the fact because it's perishable product. It happens in real time. Also, in the commercial industry, up until quite recently, it's been a dirty secret. No one really wants to talk about the fact that product gets buried in the ground. Everybody makes, you know, a lot of, um, they put a lot of, value on being seen as doing the right thing. No one wants to talk about the inevitable food waste that comes from the manufacturing process. So, you know, up until recently, no one's really wanted to talk about that either. Um, so visibility for me has been the critical um, the, the critical unlocker. It's been pivotal for us to really be able to give visibility to the product that's going to waste, to surplus product, to at-risk product, to get people to understand why it's in that position that there's nothing wrong with it whatsoever and then bring it to market so that's been the bulk of the work um, is actually gaining people's trust and understanding the size of the problem and speaking to our users and developing the technology to to answer to their needs and that's where we're going to get the scale and we've only recently got product market fit like that's only happening now it's it's a long journey 
it's a complex problem and it's been a long journey and a painful one as well at times. <laughs> but it, it seems like uh, Yumi has a, has a great end-to-end uh, process already uh, in play, in operation. So if, if I were to, my understanding of how Yumi works is by and large um, food that is rescued and it's not, and, and, and given the opportunity then to be sold. Uh, and if it's not be sold, then it goes uh, to other places. Yeah, yeah, very simplistically. And I think that's, that does, that's exactly the, the duck on the water sort of analogy. It, it, you put some food on a platform, if it doesn't sell, it goes to donation. And that's really, uh, yes, it is that. It's also an awful lot more than that. So um, the idea was, first of all, with a two-sided marketplace, you need to build both sides, right? You can have all the food in the world, but if you haven't got people to buy it, then no one's going to, your user experience is going to be appalling. So a bulk of the work goes into um, identifying and engaging both sides of that marketplace. And then what we're dealing with and the, the, the people we're speaking to are Goliaths in the industry, okay? So not so easy just to knock on the CEO's door and say, hey, CEO of Unilever, come chat to me about all of the food that doesn't make it through to your products, your end product. Let's talk about that. You know, it's not that easy. And so that's been a large chunk of the work to date is really gaining the trust, gaining access to these people and to understanding the problem and not finger pointing. Like I said earlier, it's not one, one, it's not, you can't point the finger at one category of people and say they're the baddies. They're not, none of them are. Um, it's everybody just trying to achieve their KPIs and deliver for everything from their shareholders to their teams to everybody and everything in between. So we needed to gain their trust. Then we also needed to buy the buying cohort. But then it's hard to engage a buying cohort if you don't actually have any really decent product at a decent price on your platform. So it's the old chicken and egg and two-sided marketplaces are notoriously difficult because of that point. Because you've got to get to critical mass before you've actually got anything that you can talk about. And that costs money, right? It costs money. Business development, good old-fashioned. you got to make relationships with people and get them engaged into what you're doing, get them talking, find the product. Then you've got to build the tech underneath that. And the food industry is really complex. Everything comes in different types of units. And it's in, there's freight in this country and there's you know, it's huge, vast tracts of land. And the surplus may be on the East Coast, but it's really needed in the West Coast. And that, how do you do that and still keep it competitive? Because surplus product is by its very nature, got less value in it as seen by the market. So look, there's all of these things that needed to be overcome before we could even have a right to play. And that's really what we've spent our time doing is uh, getting the seat at the table and earning our right to play. And we've done that now. We've been around since 2016. Um, so what's that, five years coming up for, you know, six years and so we've now earned our right to play with the FMCGs, with the buyers on the other side, and we've built up some really strong uh, cohorts on both sides that trust us and are working with us and actually help us develop the technology. And I think that's key as well. Don't think you can do it alone. You don't need to do it alone. And good luck if you're going to do it alone. You're much better to do it in collaboration with those that actually have the problem rather than try and uh, if we build it, they will come mentality of tech. We'll build it. They'll come. Well, they won't because they don't know what you're doing and they don't think it's as wonderful as you do. And especially when you're dealing with food waste or surplus product, you're dealing with something which is a very low priority for them. 
because their job is to sell full price product to their existing buying cohorts and develop new channels to market for full price product, right? And brand that product so that you keep the brand integrity intact. So the last thing you want is anything that's imperfect out there on the market, because now you could cannibalize your own brand and your own market. So there's a lot mixed up in this. But when you break it down, it is putting a product onto a platform and if it doesn't sell, then it's donated. But behind there is just a tiny, um, I guess, flavor of how challenging it is to get to this point. Completely appreciate that there are so many different challenges in this, in this process. But the fact that you've, you've been able to get a well-oiled machine going, I would imagine adds to that credibility. Playing, um, you know, bringing you me to the table means that you have a very matured way of thinking about how uh, food waste is is uh, to be managed, and a very and a feasible solution that is sustainable. What are some of the um, elements that you have seen um, from the operational side that keep this um, keep you me, you know, an important player in this field? I guess elements from the operational side has been, as I say, engaging collaboratively with some anchor companies that we test with. It's about a constant iterative process with them. So we we try something, we'll do a roadmap of a function that they've told us they want. We go back to them and then develop it in partnership with them. So we don't do things in uh, isolation from our, from our users. Um, and also recently it's been looking at the buying journey as well because we focus so squarely on the supplier's journey uh, because we obviously need the product. We wanted to understand the problem, the size of the problem, because only when you understand the size of the problem and the addressable market that you're looking at, can you design something that's actually going to work for you? Um, and then you've got to raise funds based on that. So there's a whole, whole raft of things that come into play. And so recently we've started to look at the buyer's journey as well because, you know, we've done a good job, I would say, now on the buyer, on the supplier experience, but then the buyers maybe not having the greatest party in town, you know, they're having to come and we've not spent as much time on making sure that their journey is, you know, a really enjoyable experience. So that's what we're working on now. So there's always something to improve on. There's always something that we could do better um, and there still is a lot that we can do better. Um, but I think, you know, adding the functionality of donation with a critical part, given my history, it's something that I always wanted to do. It was never a question that that would happen. But again, with all of those um, parts in play, you've got to have the people at the table in order to have the food to sell in order to then donate it if it doesn't sell. And there are existing channels in play for, you know, clearance goods, goods especially if, um, you know, packaged retail goods, but they're traders and um, there's, a, there's a whole world there of traders and other, other operators and that's where product loses visibility. So the companies will potentially, if they're stuck with a large consignment, take an offer from a trader, which may be sort of almost a penny in the dollar and, and um and then sell it through, but they lose they lose all visibility of their stock at that point, and that's one of the reasons that it goes to landfill or it, it goes to animal feed is because they're they're frightened of where it's going to end up. They've got no control over that once they've sold it. So one of the things that Yumi does is give complete visibility to the supplier of where that product ends up, and they can say yes and they can say no. And so I think there's so much that we've had to develop over the years to understand, but it's all done. Um, you know, the times we have thought that we will develop something in isolation or the times we have 
um, gone off on a limb and gone, oh, we've got this great idea. We must do this. You know, inevitably are always the ones that fail because they're not, they're our idea. They're not necessarily coming from the user needs or the user experience or, um, and, and so that's my biggest learning is, don't sell yourself the dream. Test your thinking with the people that are actually using your product to make sure you're building something that they love, not just something that you love. It's a really good point. And uh, the buyer's journey is one that uh, that particularly caught my attention. Um, and and I'd be keen to understand if you had any stories to share, and especially around some of the uh, outstanding insights that you had when, when that buyer's journey process uh, commenced and and the analysis took place. Did you did you find anything that you weren't expecting, um, or anything that uh, that's worth sharing? The buyers' journey. Well, yeah, I mean, so much. When you speak to the buyers, they were. Oh, it's a real. It's, it's a real pain in the ass to use this. <laughs> like, oh, really? Tell me more about that. You know, and I made some of those calls myself because at the end of the day, I still want to hear. I saw, you know, I. Yeah, I have a team that do a lot of this work, but I, I, you know, got on the phone to the, the some of our buyers to hear from myself what they thought, and I think it's really refreshing when someone goes, "Oh, this is so clunky, really clunky to use." You know, I'd use it a lot more if you could do A, B, C, D. I'm writing my notes; it goes through to the team, you know, and then they conducted and they, you know, they'd set up a whole list of open questions so we didn't have bias in there. And it's really good to hear that. And I think, you know, for any founder or any CEO of any company anywhere, don't be afraid to hear the critical feedback. You know, it's, that's, where the, that's where the nuggets of gold are. Don't ignore that. Don't ever let your own, I don't know, sense of ego or vision get in the way of actually building something that's going to work. I think often it's the founders that get in the way of their own success, to be honest, and their own ability to manifest something that's going to, make a difference is the ego gets in the way and you start to think it's you that is the special source. I am not the special source. Nobody is the special source. All right. It's the collective that's the special source. It is it is all of those minds coming together. It's the community that's the special source. I hear that so much thrown around and I always roll my eyes when people say, oh, but it's so-and-so that's the special source. I'm like, no, it's not. It's so-and-so's ability to bring around an amazing group of people. That could be something that's really critically important. And I would say that I have a, a, an ability to um, genuinely uh, onboard members of the team who have passion for what we're doing. Yes, I can. I've got a good bullshit detector. Absolutely. That's not special source. That's just I've got a good bullshit detector. Let's strip it back, right? And that means that when I interview people, I'm talking to people. You can smell if someone's disingenuous, probably best way to wear it, from a mile off. But, you know, that's not special source. That's just getting older, I think, and being able to get the wheat from the chaff. So, um, yeah, I think get, get out of the way. Um, do a lot of listening. Be ready to be wrong. And don't give up. Those are, uh, I mean, absolutely agree with you. First of all, hundred uh, percent in my line of work, we need to bring people together. Sometimes people who have a lot of resistance to what we have to say uh, and other times people who are, who are uh, going to be part of the, the, the vision that we set forth for them. So it's really interesting 
bringing people together is is actually one of the objectives of this podcast, uh, Nano Community Tech. It is a community uh, channel. It's about exchange, and I think I, I reflect on how the ethos of what you bring to the uh, to your role um, and. Um, the elements of success uh, of actually bringing people together, uh, those resonate to me 100%. And I think is the only way uh, to make big strides in solving massive complex problems. Um, and I think it would be good to, to reflect a little bit on, on how you think future problems that are yet to happen or perhaps are happening and, and will only increase what are your thoughts on what some of those critical problems look like in the future? And if you've thought of ways to resolve, to address them, bring the great minds together, perhaps, um, perhaps some commentary on that would, uh, would be great. I'm probably going to go a bit woo-woo here, as people call it. But, um, you know, I mean, obviously, you only know what you know. And, yeah, we were ahead of the curve on this and saw things that, you know, the, I, I don't think that the market was ready for us when we started with Yumi. That was part of the problem. It wasn't ready. Six years ago, it wasn't ready to have that conversation. And now it is. And then, you know, you you realise only when people sort of build up speed and then you get a seat at the table that you were ahead of the curve. So I'm always looking at how we're going to innovate. And so for me, with Yumi, I can talk about that and what the future state of Yumi looks like. I want to be in a situation where I can say to any FMCG company or any manufacturer or any producer anywhere, once you are plugged into the Yumi technology, no food will ever go to waste. That's what I want to be able to say. We're not there yet, um, but that is a one-stop solution that we want to, that we are designing. So we're in that phase, that, that, that innovation continues. So even though we're seen as innovative technology, because it doesn't exist anywhere else, um, the only place that's similar is in the in the US, which is spoiler alert. And I speak to Ricky, the founder CEO of that regularly, because I again, I believe in collaboration. This is a massive problem. I don't need to empire build or own the solution. That's the last thing I want to do. Um, I want to share the solution. I want to see how we can both help each other rise up more quickly. You know, and he jokingly he's just done a Series A and I'm like, nice one, because I can follow you into a Series A. And he's like, yeah, maybe you get to Series B before me. And, you know, there's this really healthy kind of, if you go first and I can, it's easier for me to follow in. <laughs> because up until this point, we didn't know each other. We hadn't spoken and we were doing it alone, both of us blind. No one else was doing it. So building technology at this level with the FMCG companies in mind to really smooth that process and give real-time dashboard data, that's just not happened before. So that was all really new. Um, so, yeah, that's the future state of Yumi, and we're, we're progressing really quickly in um, exploring that, again, with partners that can help accelerate that position. Um, I think the worst thing founders can do is actually be super possessive over their ideas ideas and think you've got an idea that you've got to protect no if it's not in market it's not massive trust me you can share it because the amount of blood sweat and tears that's gone to get it to this point good luck someone trying to you know come in and copy it in a, in a heartbeat it wouldn't be easy it's there's a lot more to it than building a platform um so you know it's it, it that's the future state and they're the problem so i can only see that food is going to become more scarce as climate change increases and the scarcity of food is going to breed civil unrest in the future. So we need to sort that out now. You know, we've got this window of opportunity. It stands to, re to, stands to reason that 
if you've got uh, climate change accelerating, which is going to make it less, um, you know, less favourable conditions to grow food, that there's going to be food shortages. You've got a growing population. You don't need to be Einstein to work out what what it could look like down the down the road if we don't sort ourselves out. Um, and it's not very pretty. So I think that from a, a woo-woo perspective, we need to uh, really take a moment to stop and breathe and have a look at what's going on right now. And my personal belief is we've been asleep at the wheel for some time. You know, we are a real, we're a pretty new species on this amazing planet that has succeeded us for, you know, billions of years. And here we rock up, you know, and basically, you know, the industrial revolution and then agriculture and what we've done to the planet in a profoundly short space of earth time is pretty extreme. Well, it's not pretty, it's bloody extreme. It's terrifying if you really look at it. But the thing that I take heart with, because you could actually just say, well, what's the point in doing anything? I'm going to crawl underneath my duvet with a bottle of gin. But instead of doing that, I think it's about saying, well, we are actually part of nature. And that's the one thing that I never lose sight of. I am nature. I'm nature. I'm part of this planet. You know, it breathes, I breathe. It's, it, we're not, you know, we can build our cities, we can do our thing, but we are still, and I'm reminded of that every time nature puts on a show to remind me how extraordinarily powerful she is and that blows everything away or floods something or, you know, we've got to wake up. And when we're contributing to that change, then that is just blind stupidity to not act and to think it doesn't affect me because it does because you're part of me. So what can we do? What can individuals, what can our listeners listening in do immediately? Well, definitely wake up, I think, is the first thing to what is happening. Um, it's not something that is in the in the grand distant future that's going to happen to, you know, your great, 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 great grandchildren. It's happening to us now. We're affected by climate change and it's certainly going to affect our children. So it's really close. It's arm's length now. Um, and I, I think just even listening to a podcast like this, reading, being aware, understanding, changing our consciousness, taking a moment before you plug in. So before you plug into society, which is what we do every morning, we wake up. Some people, first thing they do is check their socials, check their emails, check before. I used to be that person, right? Before my feet touched the ground of my bed, I would have jumped online to see if I'd missed anything in the time that I was sleeping. I mean, sad, missing the point, right? Um So before I plug now into society's expectations of me and I buy into what society wants of me and what is happening there online, I don't do that anymore. The very first thing I do is meditate every single morning. And trust me, if for some reason I cut that short or I'm not present in my meditation, you know about it. I I know about it. But I was that person the whole time, you know, before I started this practice. Just plug into the planet plug into what is important, plug into nature because I realise I am it and I breathe and I'm in this body and I set an intention for the day and I know what that intention is. And it doesn't mean that the day goes well. It doesn't mean that all positive things come at you all day, but it does mean that when something comes at you as a curveball, which in a startup, it does all the time. So instead of being hit around by that, I, I feel that I've, I'm grounded in that. And when you're grounded, 
you can think of solutions really easily because you're not in panic and you're not anxious um, and you're not got to get it done really quickly. You're present and you breathe. And if ever I find myself getting anxious or I can't find a solution, instead of running faster, I actually will put my headset on. I will go and practice uh, you know, 10 minutes, 15 minutes of meditation. I guarantee it works every time. I've never come out of one of those sessions going, oh, I feel a lot worse. Ever, ever has that happened. So I think it's all of that. It's a We need to plug into ourselves before we plug into society. That would be the biggest thing I think we can do. Honestly, it's a game changer. And, and what a wonderful message because, well, you know, I've recently started uh, doing yoga and, and there's a lot of, there's a lot of mindful messages in yoga uh, that is actually, I think increasingly made me realize that slowing down, stepping back um, and taking difficult uh, experiences, because sometimes those poses, they, they look way harder. They, they, they're much harder than they look. Um, but but stepping back and 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 going well you know I'll I'll address this now go as far as I can and then come back to it at another time and seeing progress and improvement actually is way more productive and way more effective than plugging away and trying to force um force the 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 the, the result I want so I think that that has actually helped me a lot and has helped me deal with a lot of uh, I, I guess the the frustration that I experience in a, from a work perspective as well as in in personal life. So I think that I, I think that resonates really well. I, I can totally relate to it, and I'm I'm I too am starting a, a bit of meditation on top of that. In fact, if I can quickly share with you, I went on a ten day meditation course where there was silence, and I think if uh, one of the key experiences over there was uh, it actually takes a lot of effort to talk. <laughs> <laughs> that was my key uh, key takeaway from that one. Uh, after ten days of silence, uh, I had w- and I think it was a twenty minute chat. On the last day, we could chat with others there, um, and I had to lie down after that because it was just too too yeah. draining. And I find that that's that's how, uh, fundamentally where things are at um, with work with a lot of us at work, um, and and you know when I think about it, bad work practices and, and, uh, and probably a negative mental state actually contributes to bad eating choices, which could tr- possibly contribute to more food wastage. <laughs> if I can bring that back to food wastage, but, but that's how I think about it. <laughs> no, I think that's spot on. And, you know, it's, I, I've been that person that burns out, I've been the person that just goes 24 seven, that goes into the office on a Sunday you know, I've been that person. I'm not that person anymore. And I'm far more creative, productive, efficient. And my company is doing better than it has because of those different practices. So the proof's in the pudding, right? It's, you know, it really is where where the energy goes, you know, where the focus goes, the energy follows. There is no, that, that, that ha- that's what happens. So, you know, it's important to remember those those very human elements of ourselves and that's where the creativity and the magic happens and it can happen for anybody. Anyone can have a great idea, but then you need to, you know, really 
to execute it you need energy and you need stamina it's not uh you know behind every overnight success there's 10 years of trough of sorrow and toil I can guarantee it you know very rarely does someone have a great idea and then it's a unicorn before you know it if you actually unpack it there's a lot of blood sweat and tears that's gone into that but there's also a lot of self-reflection and founders that have had to own that they don't have all the answers and be challenged. And I think that's what's really exciting about it. I've grown more doing um, Yumi and building Yumi than I ever have done in any other role because I've been really on my own. And I think the stewardship of, of Ian and other people in other companies meant that I was, but this one I've really kind of been out on my own a lot more and that's been a blessing and a curse, but it certainly led me to a point where I collaborate with other people, um, but the decisions at Yumi are mine, and that's it. They're not. They're not. They're, they're my decisions. They're my, my. Ultimately, it's my decision, which means that when it fails, I've got to own it, and I have to. And I've said, you know, when we've made decisions that haven't worked, I will own that. Well, that was my decision, guys. It didn't work. That's on me. It's not on them. Being in a position like the CEO. Um, and a founder of a startup can often be very lonely in the sense that professionally it can be very lonely because you're, you're at the top, you're making all these decisions. Um, you know, my partner owns her own business and it's, it's the same sort of structure. It's very, um, very, it's a very solo um, world. And, and I think when you say have that collaboration, have a trusted circle, I think that adds um, that much needed, I suppose it's to some extent companionship, but also um, a a method to move forward. Because, like you said before, it just can't be done on your own. If we wanted to get in touch with Yumi, what's the best way to do so? Uh, the best way to do so is uh, hop on our website, which is uh, www.yumifood. Y U M for mother E. Yumifood.com.au and um, Yumi means to dream in Japanese. So we're dreaming of a world without food waste. Um, and the, if you just send us an email, someone will get back to you. But have a look on there and just spread the word, really, and let people know that if there is, I mean, we deal with large-scale food waste. Um, so this is food waste coming from large-scale manufacturers, and we sell it through to business buyers. Um, but there's always opportunity for everybody to make a difference. And there genuinely is. Like I am nothing particularly special. I'm as special as everybody else. We're all special. We've all got that, you know, that bit of magic or that bit of innovation or that thing that makes us uniquely us. And I would say um, to anyone, don't doubt that you can make a difference because you can. Um, you've just got to believe in yourself, understand your value. And I heard this the other day. I'm going to finish on this because this I thought was brilliant. Um, there's a, it had a picture of a bottle of water. I don't know if you've seen this. There's a bottle of water and it's just one of those, you know, cheapy bottles of water. And it said, this bottle of water will cost you a dollar in the supermarket. It will cost you uh, $3 in a hotel. It will cost you $5 on an airplane. The bottle of water doesn't change. It's just how people value it that changes. So if you're not being valued where you are, if you're not receiving your value, move, change, change where you are, change the way you, you look at the world and go and be valued the way you deserve to be. I think sometimes we, we feel comfort in our smallness and there's, there's no comfort in being small. Go and be brilliant, be big, be brave, 
Be bright. What a positive message to end the uh, the podcast on. Thank you so much for such an uplifting and inspirational uh, chat, Katie. Thank you so much for your time. Absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me, Sandy.